that helps all kinds of businesses closer to the consumer side, logistics, retailers, and wholesalers to estimate and predict a lot of things associated with general product demand and individual product demand, eventually then reducing costs for um, businesses across the board. So now after the delivery service has become our learning environment and an in-house learning environment for that model, that non-static inventory and operations management model, which is really cool because it's a different approach. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the pleasure of speaking with Lucas Minkoff and Logan Schumann. Born and raised in Vienna, Austria, and a former member of the Austrian Armed Forces, Lucas is the son of first-generation immigrants. Launching his first startup at the age of 17, he serially created companies spanning e-commerce marketing businesses to most recently in 2020, an organization providing masks to marginalized communities and selling into the German Red Cross during the pandemic. Logan, who was born in Buffalo, New York, has a passion for entrepreneurship and background in sales and connected with Lucas as students at Kent State, where together they founded Afters.io and are building out IDRA, an acronym standing for Intelligent Demand and Revenue Augmentation. As they can attest to firsthand, consumers and particularly college students today expect instant gratification when it comes to e-commerce delivery. Existing options like Instacart may offer same-day delivery on groceries, but cannot accommodate 10 to 15-minute deliveries during late hours when college students need it most. Their focus has been to build out a hyperspeed delivery service that delivers everyday convenience store items like drink mixers, cleaning products, and snacks in 10 minutes or less. And through their bootstrap trial at Kent State, they have validated this hypothesis, yielding a seven-minute average delivery time on more than 2,500 fulfilled orders and over $30,000 in revenue. As part of their experimentation, they discovered value they could actually unlock beyond a local delivery service, where they are focused on coupling modern logistics best practices with AI to increase delivery speed and predict product demand with increased accuracy. I enjoyed learning about Logan and Lucas's experience so far, and I'm excited to see where they take afters and IDRA next. Please enjoy my conversation with Lucas Minkoff and Logan Schumann. With two of you on, I found it's always kind of helpful to associate voices with names so that people can, can follow along. So, so how about to start us off here, kick us off with, with some introductions? My name is Logan Schumann. So I'm from Buffalo, New York, and then I went to school at Kent State University where I studied entrepreneurship. And that's kind of when I got, you know, started to get involved thinking that way and trying to do certain things, you know, to live that entrepreneurial lifestyle. And then I met Lucas through some mutual friends and I brought the idea up to him and we just kind of rolled with it. Yeah. um, My name is Lucas. I'm originally from Austria, so you might hear some grammar, <laughs> grammar mistakes along the way, but um, I try my best. I, as Logan mentioned, we went to school together. We graduated last year and we started this together, I think September in 2020. Were you two kind of always interested in this, in this entrepreneurship kind of endeavor? How did, how did your interest in, in trying to build something come to, come to be? Yeah. So for me specifically, it's kind of funny. So I was majoring in criminal justice and then I had a minor in entrepreneurship. And as you know, sophomore year starts to hit, I start to get into these major classes. I realized that I really didn't care about the criminal justice classes, but then all the entrepreneurial classes I was super interested in. And I never wanted to directly trade my time for money. I know with entrepreneurship, you end up working, you know, 20 hour days instead of eight hour days, but you're working on something that you own and that is truly a part of you. Um, So I I wouldn't simply, I would say, you know, just not trading that time for money. It was super important to me. So that's when I kind of started to get aspirations, you know, to build something up. So then I started a clothing company at first. I realized I didn't really care about the clothing industry. And then that way, um, when I was taking these classes, I kind of segued and then started afters. And for me, actually, it it started 
uh, quite young. I, <laughs> the first thing that I remember that I did entrepreneurial wise, and I got in trouble by my school teacher for that was doing origami and selling it to my classmates. But um, <laughs> over time, I kind of realized that it's less about, I mean, obviously money is great and it's um, needed, but it, I always love building stuff. That's why I always started different things. A lot of things have failed. Um, a lot of things, some things actually have actually worked out. Um, my first endeavor was a uh, locally uh, sourced, um, designed sparkling wine in Austria, drinking theirs legal from earlier ages. And I started it at 17, which was really funny. Um, here, everybody just confused when you mentioned that to them. But always <laughs> a love for design and building things and then a few companies along the way. And now we're here. Right on. So so tell us a little bit about Afters, right? So how does this idea come to to be? What are you guys... What are the questions you're throwing around? Did you have kind of a, a vision? Did it stem from a problem you guys were experiencing? Where did the idea come from? Yeah, so it definitely stemmed from a problem that we had. So throughout the entrepreneurship program at Kent State, they kind of hold your hand through the whole process, right? So, you know, it starts as the idea and then we write the business plan. And when we were in the idea phase, I was like, oh, wow, like I really don't know what to do because I don't want to stick with this clothing thing. And it was, it was at night, you know, after we were out and a couple people, you know, wanted some vapes, a couple of people just wanted to drink and one of our friends wanted a pizza and nobody wanted to drive. And there was a very limited amount of stores that were open and available to consumers late at night. And so we were like, what if we could just, you know, get something delivered here with all these variety of different products, all from one service and have it be here very quickly because that's another thing with college you know 20 minutes from now you might not be at the same location you just were so incorporating that instantaneous delivery to satisfy the need for instantaneous gratification was also super important to us so originally i had the worst name for it it was called warehouse delivery and then from the clothing company i realized you know what i really need a business partner they'll hold you accountable so then me and lucas were just kind of bouncing it back and forth and then uh we became partners on it and then the first thing he was like dude we have to change the name uh (laughs) we changed it from warehouse delivery to uh what it is now after is because the idea was created at like an after party yeah and mind you that that time where we started with it was actually early 2020 um conceptualizing it when instant services or or groceries on demand and these things um which we can talk about later have not even existed yet it was only one two businesses internationally that did that i know in 2020 a lot of companies spawned that are now quite big but we'll cover later that we're actually not quite in their industry but yeah it was it was actually at the time that this started becoming a thing and obviously um the pandemic was also a contributing factor to not having things available late at night so you guys have this this problem that arises from your your own experience recognize that there's a, an opportunity there potentially how do you how do you go from from this idea to trying to to build something to to kind of validate you know what you could what afters maybe has become at this point? I feel like a lot of that has to do with one, Lucas's entrepreneurial background. You know, like he said, he started at a very young age. Um, so having that like different sort of mindset per se when thinking out logistically and looking at like analytics for how or why we should approach something, he had a lot of good input there. And then as well in the entrepreneurial department, like I said, you know, they're kind of holding your hand through this process, like the idea and then building up the business plan. And my teachers were great resources for us, you know, giving us the outline for the business plan, questioning us on certain things like, are you really sure this is going to work if this happens? And just really making you think outside the box and taking everything into account. They did a really good job for And then from there, you know, once we did have the business plan, up and running we just kind of looked at each other and we were like hey why wait let's just do it now get our feet wet and hit the ground running and see where it goes and so that's exactly what we did so if you think about like the vision of what afters is it kind of is logistically complicated it's going to touch not just the software component but it's it's playing very much in the real world and there's a physical component and people delivery all this is you know it's a big coordination problem so how did you guys think about you know, trying to to work towards 
what you might think of as like an MVP for this kind of thing that you were trying to build? Actually, Logan uh, did a lot of surveying to understand the current uh, current environment which in which we're at, which is a very, very college-centered demographic. We, we noticed that all this surveying and all this planning is great, but like he mentioned before, and which is um, which is why I'm very happy that we work together. We we just had to start. Um, after enough serving and understanding our environment in which we live, we we just took the practical approach and started doing it. We definitely planned out um driver times, uh, delivery schedules, things like the optimal radius in which we can deliver. Originally was 15 minutes. Now it's 10 minutes, but with an average of seven, and we have barely ever went over that average of seven minute delivery in the last. Um, I mean, year, and that's still su- serving all the people within within our environment, and I think almost entire the entirety of Kent. It's around three miles. So there was some calculations on routes and times, and considering if two people order at an inconvenient time, that's more on the strategic side. But with implementation and with working on it and optimizing it as a beta, which we did, we did trial runs before we officially kind of mentioned that we're rolling it out. Um, as a strict uh, company, um, so to speak. Uh, but we, we did have a lot of support from friends and everyone that helped us to really understand what our environment needs, what we're capable of. And eventually it turned into a more, into a different business because we, we saw things along the way, which is also helped us pivot our mission, um, pivot what we're doing and what we're actually building over time. So that's been almost two years now. And what, with those learnings, would you say is the is the focus now? So we noticed that a lot of these other businesses they're not very very profitable. Um, look at DoorDash for example, which again is a different business model, but they uh, have very slim margins. They add costs on top, on top, on top because they don't profit in most cases from being a little further away from the consumer and the supply chain. But we also noticed that we can make this way more efficient, not even only in the delivery sphere, but look at supermarkets, look at general retail, look at e-commerce. We noticed that we had a profitable month within our first trial run, which is kind of um, unheard of, especially in this space. Um, And then we thought about over time, okay, what are the reasons? What are the costs associated? How can we reduce those? And eventually we started working with the entrepreneurship department here as well. A good mentor of ours, Professor Rowland, actually leads that department. We've worked with him to also figure out a strategy and a plan and an economic model that eventually leads to what we're currently building. Um, we lovingly call it IDRA. It's called Intelligent Demand and Revenue Augmentation. And I can talk about that a little bit later, but um, what it basically means, it helps all kinds of businesses closer to the consumer side, logistics, retailers, and wholesalers to estimate and predict a lot of things associated with general product demand and individual product demand, eventually then reducing costs for um, businesses across the board. So now after the delivery service has become our learning environment and an in-house learning environment for that model, that non-static inventory and operations management model which is really cool because it's a different approach. So the plan would be to, instead of building these massive warehouses or, or even micro or nano storage facilities, create pop-ups in different communities to gather data in versatile communities, the different demographics, gather that data that we can then use with our framework and our AI to really optimize that and use a, uh, create a tool for other businesses. So basically we're becoming a SaaS company. Got it. So kind of, I think it'd be helpful just to take us back to that kind of initial, you know, bootstrap trial run that that you had where you kind of were able to collect some of those statistics, right? Seven minute delivery time, a few thousand orders fulfilled. Maybe just like walk us through what that actually looked like. You mentioned a few concepts there, the micro warehouses. How did this actually work? How did people place an order? How did orders get fulfilled? What, what did this trial actually look like? Originally, we were using Shopify and based on Shopify, we kind of did like all our internal record keepings when it comes to inventory. If consumers were paying, um, if we still need to, you know, collect the payment and it was super beneficial and kind of made everything easy because there wasn't as many kinks as we have now with creating our own app outside of Shopify. But so essentially how we, you know, bootstrapped it originally is we were doing direct marketing, right? So we created these door flyers. Imagine like 
you know, at a hotel, they have like the do not disturb signs. We would, yeah, make, yeah. we would make those and they would be branded towards afters and we would keep it super simple, a couple pictures and put our main message like hyperspeed online convenience store, free delivery, 10 minute delivery. And like, that was essentially it. And then we would go around to all like the major apartment complexes. So we could hit a bunch of different doors in a very quick time span. And we saw a lot of traction based off of that. And another thing that also helped us, ironically, is a bunch of people from Kent State where we were in Fort Lauderdale for spring break. And everyone was like, wow, like, I wish we had afters here. And just the word of mouth promotion from everyone saying like, oh, we wish we had it. We wish we had it. Once we got back from spring break, I feel like that's when it like really took off. And we were like, okay, like we have something here. Yeah. And for Lauderdale did have um, other services. It, it was just not the same, I guess, for the consumers. And, and how does that last mile piece look at that point? How, how are people actually getting the things that they ordered from afters? Yeah, so the order will um, come in and then we can go ahead and accept the order and we'll mark it once it's quote unquote like picked up. So once it's quote unquote picked up, what that essentially means is that we have all the products in the bag, we're about to leave and ready to go. And then through the app, we can see their address, right? So then we just click on the address and we'll have our drivers take it from one of our nano facilities to the driver and then when the order does get there we can click that it's been delivered and they'll get sent a notification on their phone that the order has been delivered but then their phone number is also there so then we can shoot them you know a quick call or a quick text and let them know we're there and a lot of consumers would also pay via venmo that was another thing we wanted our can consumers to have a very easy time throughout the entire process and nowadays a lot of college kids it's easier just to send a quick venmo than pull out your card and enter your card information so with that being said once the drivers got there we would just pull out the venmo and they could venmo us but it got to the point where you know we had a lot of returning customers so they already knew our venmo so a lot of the times before we even got there the venmo was already sent which was kind of neat yeah, and oh. the order would be picked up from our facility here, where we also try to offer the drivers, who are often college um, students, an opportunity to study in here, kind of created this nice work environment for them that's kind of giving them the work, life, and study balance that they need, because, I mean, obviously, they won't have to do orders um, for eight hours straight, right? Um, they would have time in between, they could watch TV, they can do homework, and all these things. So everything is located here, the drivers and the products. So I want to touch on something, Lucas, that I think you mentioned, but, you know, really you guys are, from my perception, in the, like a thunderdome of competition in a highly competitive market where a lot of people have failed before and a lot are pretty deep in the arena. You have, you know, GoPuff, Instacart, DoorDash, and a lot of these companies have had the real proliferation of all of us being somewhat remote over the pandemic and becoming just more accustomed to this you know, Logan, to your, to your words, like instant gratification, you know, very, very quick consumer oriented stuff, right? As a consumer, when I want ice cream at 10 PM and I, I want it in under 30 minutes, am I going to have options? And I, I'm curious, like how, how have, how have y'all thought about, you know, what you are building that other new entrants haven't like, how, how do you think about differentiation in this space? I think initially the biggest thing was we wanted to be free um, because everybody hates fees. We hate fees, especially college students who don't have the necessary spare change hate fees. Secondly, even 30 minutes and even what you currently get, um, I know GoPuff takes longer actually, um, but DoorDash sometimes does a pretty good job with their decentralized driver system, but it's still not really f faster than going from your place to the gas station and getting it right there. We are which was another very big beneficial factor of why people preferred us for certain products and certain things. But this differentiation is great. And in, from a consumer perspective, it's not a 10 X differentiating factor, right? It is, it is preferable and maybe the lower fees uh, help, but at the end of the day, the core thing that, I mean, also when going to fundraising and those things, it's hard to kind of tell an investor or someone else that, okay, yeah, we're way faster and we'll have all kinds of products, but 
that doesn't quite work out. The world is not as beautiful and simple, especially in our entrepreneurship space, as we, we would love to think. And hence, we dialed in on what we actually do best. Is, and I believe that is really understanding our consumers, which is a very, very general term, especially in marketing and stuff. But when I say this, I actually mean it on a technical level. We understood exactly which products over time, which we did everything manual to understand it, exactly which products will give us great margins, which products will not, even individual brands and perfect substitutes of, let's say, water, whatever it is. We understood whether it matters to overstock and um, lose inventory space where we can differentiate with other products. And at the end of the day, this is where we started pivoting into becoming more of a SaaS company. And instead of trying to compete with these businesses, we will eventually, hopefully very soon, offer them a tool that will save them costs and actually automatically scale their business. Um, it's I don't know if I mentioned the name. It's called IDRA. Uh, in, in, I, I think I did. The word intelligent obviously comes from the AI aspect because manually doing those things is virtually impossible. Demand and revenue augmentation is um, for a multitude of factors. But um, yeah, I can go into that also a little later if that's interesting. Yes, no, I, I definitely want to cover the the work you're doing uh, with IDRA and, and really what you've learned from from afters. But I, I'm curious, just on on the afters thread, kind of closing out the the pilot. If the cost is not passed in fees, you know how how is it that you guys were were saving that that money and providing a, a cheaper, more affordable experience for for folks placing orders? Yeah, so that's a really good question, and it kind of coincides with what Lucas was talking about when we're looking at inventory levels and things like that. So even though you know we don't have the luxury of getting that extra two ninety nine or five ninety nine from the delivery fee, by being able to save money in other categories like warehouse space or you know dead stock from the shelf life expiring, you know being able to save money there definitely helps us. But then ultimately, you know what we do is it's almost like the stock market, you know, buy the products low and sell them higher. So instead of having, you know, that upfront delivery fee that just comes out of nowhere at the end, essentially, you know, you might pay an extra 50 cents for a bag of chips here and there. And also you can kind of imagine it like the general, just so for simplification, a supermarket makes money from what? On buying in bulk and selling um, in at, at retail prices. Basically the same model minus the cashier costs, the cost for, as Logan said, storage space minus all of that stuff. So we're just, instead of really changing the entire system, we're just reducing costs because we optimize and streamline things. Got it. No, that makes sense. It's just interesting to think about because it it's specifically an industry that I think is notoriously blighted by low margins and and the whole kind of narrative of a lot of these companies as they've gone public and you kind of get an inside look of what their financials look like. They're all, as you mentioned, struggling <laughs> to, to actually make money at scale. But they also overspend on um, customer acquisition costs, especially competing in bigger cities where people overlook um, the, the broad mass of people that don't live in cities. Obviously, the majority does, but places like Kent, once you re reach a critical amount of customers, you you are profitable. Once, if you go to other college towns where these services are not quite as efficient as in the big cities, when you look at New York, Gorillas, Joker, uh, GoPuff, all of them are competing for obviously a lot of people. <laughs> there are also a lot of competition, which we have obviously managed to avoid here and then pivoted into something else, which I would believe we can be more successful in instead of overspending on customer acquisition. Yeah, so so maybe let's let's talk a little bit about uh, Idra. So the the model is is a little different. The the customer is different. It's it's as I'm understanding it, a tool to empower you know these kinds of instant gratification platforms to do their jobs even better than they're currently doing it. Not only so we can we can help a lot of parts of the supply chain, starting with retail to wholesale to even manufacturers, because instead of taking and there's, I think, one company that does something similar, but not quite how we do it. But instead of taking a top-down approach, um, using aggregate data, past sales and sales forecasts, and using these outdated static models that we learn about it in learn about in school or anywhere else, uh, that say, okay, this is your lead time, this is um, your safety stock, etc. These are 
models that get optimized with small things, but they're mostly static, right? So your predictions, even with seasonality included, your predictions are not really accurate. Never actually. And we're trying to get as close as possible to accurate demand prediction with including a lot of a lot of um, hyperlocal factors that are also closer to the consumer. Once we understand the individual consumer within his environment, we can make assumptions about um, how the entire demand of that area or even the country in the future will be shaped. So instead of we, we try to see the forest for the trees is kind of a metaphor that we like to use when it comes to really understanding what's going on. So can you kind of walk us through like an example of, of what this looks like in practice? You know, are, are you guys, when you think, and, and there's a few threads we can pull on here, but like geographically, are, are you focused on college environments, right? Just these kind of hyper-local spaces, mostly young people, or, you know, how are you thinking about different markets and, and just kind of maybe from like soup to nuts, just take us through what this looks like. So essentially, yes, like we are definitely focused on college kids. And there's a couple of reasons. One, being fresh out of college, we truly understand the lifestyles and the behavior and the consumer buying habits when it comes to college kids. And since we do know, you know, the lifestyles, they're busy with uh, work, they have class that they have to be at in 20 minutes, we can align ourselves more properly with these lifestyles since we truly understand them. And another thing too is since we're, we are built on this kind of like nano structure per se, we can really understand the consumer in certain cities. So let's say like, you know, St. Louis, for example, the, you know, they might buy Sprite, but they might hate 7up. And these big companies kind of miss the boat since they're just kind of lump something them all in together. Since we do have that nano approach, we truly understand, you know, what they prefer to buy, when and how. The focus on college campuses right now, as Logan mentioned, because of understanding, but it also helps us build out the model. So environmental factors that we understand while we're here are going to play part of, in our in our global model and the, the type of data and the data source, sources that we feed into our AI in the future. Uh, we try to we try to see if there's any omitted variables within our uh, within our, our formulation of everything. And basically, other than feeding data of demographics and hyperlocality, uh, census data in general, sentiment analysis, and these things, we include things that people have not really thought about. Just as a stupid example, weather weather is a good predictive indicator sometimes when you want to say, okay. Is the demand for certain products or overall going to increase when it's sunny or when it's raining? That's very simple, but I'm just trying to surface level explain that these factors are never really used on these aggregate models, where with us we can, when eventually we will have data from all different, kind of dem- different kinds of demographics um, across different cities. It's not only going to be here, it's going to be everywhere through pop-up facilities, but also using data from partners in the future. A lot of questions I have. Um, <laughs> so there, there's always kind of inherently this geographic tension between doing something at scale and doing something local. And as I'm understanding it, you know, the kind of nature of of the approach is you have to kind of own and really grasp a local market, which will have its own nuance and and uh, unique characteristics compared to another market, right? Like Kent State versus some university. You know, somewhere else in the country with completely you know different demographic makeup of, of people and different demands and, and all that. So what's the the strategy or, or tactic for kind of understanding local markets to work towards getting something at scale? So I think the best approach here and that's what kind of we're working towards is eventually building a tool that is good enough and saves a decent sized already existing company in some similar sphere enough money where we can offer our tool in exchange for a reduced price or, or, or savings or however we structure that, but also collaborate on the data exchange. So basically that would be a strategic partnership, which we would like to utilize to kind of reduce the need for us to go into all these hyper-local markets, start competing, waste money on marketing. Uh, we would just, let's say this, for example, and that's obviously far, far in the future, but, um, even let's say Walmart and their delivery service or Walmart and their analytics within 
the entire US. So we say, okay, we can offer you this tool to optimize your entire business and maybe only save you 1% in cost, which is still like amazing for a company like Walmart. And in exchange, we want to utilize the data to make the tool better, to benefit you and benefit us when we sell or, or, or um, license that tool out to others. Instead of having to do all these physical locations, it's very high cash intensive field, which there's no rational reason to do that just ourselves. You know, I, I think one of always the, the really fascinating things hearing all the founder stories is that the business that a company succeeds with is, is rarely the business that a company started with. And it's just part of navigating that idea maze to, to pivot along the way and to, to kind of follow the signal that you're getting from the market. So is there, you know, kind of a future for afters? How, how are you weighing the, you know, the two different endeavors, IDRA and afters? How, what, what, how, how are you guys thinking about the future and, and what comes next for, for the company overall? IDRA is part of afters, um, technically. It's just a... Uh... AI that we call Hydra. Afters itself will probably keep us pop-up locations and grow those um, because we think it's going to be a standalone business, especially in communities like this, but on a way smaller scale than maybe all these multinational companies are. But Afters, data and Afters, SaaS side of things, that, that I think um, will be our kind of main thing within the industry, within our, within our work that we're doing. Yeah, and I, I think the AI technology as well will kind of give us like a snowball effect per se by utilizing and implementing the AI. Uh, it'll help us expand further and at a stronger pace per se, you know. So instead of just gradually being able to, you know, move out to one city here, one city there, I think it'll really just streamline the process for us to be able to just hit the ground running and just expand. One of the things that is just running through my head is, is there a fear or a worry? You know, I think in a lot of markets, there, there generally is, right? There's the, the capability for the big player to just perhaps do what you're doing. I think like Amazon is the canonical example, you know, why I start a company in the space. If Amazon is even adjacent, they'll just, you know, do it themselves. Is there a, a reason you think that, you know, the large companies who have, maybe access to, to that data already are not, you know, building the, the tools for themselves and kind of, uh, you know, eating their own dog food, if you will. That's kind of a gray area because I actually talked to uh, someone, a supplier uh, that does medical products for uh, Amazon, that they supply medical products directly to Amazon. And Amazon's uh, forecasting system is still so bad that the, People who sell products to them have to adjust their in, insane quantities that they sometimes send out automatically. There's entire departments actually that still work on working over these results. And it looks like, and often the company, I mean, Amazon, these top um, companies have enough money to develop a lot of things, but that's the beauty of AI because technically there's nothing that you need to pay it and it's just how you work it, what data you feed it. It's it's same as an economic model. If you put unnecessary data inside or or not the right things uh, or, or you, you miss out on the right things, which for us, it's a proprietary model. We're not going to just share our, 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 well, basically our formula of what data we fit in. And then um, I don't think they, they can just do that as fast because we have already have that also first mover advantage since we've worked on this for such a time, but with AI, it takes time and it takes data. So they wouldn't waste that if maybe they purchase a company that does it, but there's not a lot of those companies either. So I personally am not really worried and maybe Logan can add to this. Yeah, I mean, and then looking at like in the delivery specific space, you know, when we're looking at GoPuff, we're looking at DoorDash, uh, one of the big structural differences between the two of us are the fact that, you know, we are based on this nano sized philosophy. And by really understanding, and I mean, like truly understanding our target audience, I feel like that gives us a great advantage over these large companies because they're missing the boat on a lot of things. Like, yeah, 30 minute delivery sounds great, but when you're in a college lifestyle, 
you have almost no idea where you'll be in 30 minutes. Like you, you could be, you know, across town by then. So, or even like when you're going home from work, like you want to be able to order something at the end of your shift and have it be there by the time you get home. So, you know, even 30 minutes, it sounds quick, but realistically that's still a significant amount of time for where a lot of different things can happen. And then with that nano ideology per se, like I said earlier, we really understand their buying habits as well. Um, making sure that we have the right products, making sure we have enough of them or purposefully only keeping a couple products. Um, so I really think, you know, that nano and understanding our audience is what sets, sets us apart. So what, what comes next for, for afters? Where, where are you guys right now? What are you working towards at the moment? We have some cool things planned, some things that we are still not finalizing, so we wouldn't want to like say too much about those. Um, other than that, uh, we're talking to some well funds and venture capital firms to potentially start a fundraise for for financing our larger scale R&D, for getting partners within the ecosystem to obtain more data. We're very confident with the current econ- economic model that we've developed and the sources of data that we want to use. We'll, we'll get a good a good model ready um, within four months of financing that we then will integrate within our entire operations for another four to six months to really test it. And as I said, after the delivery aspect is like our in-house learning environment as well. And then after that, we think within like within around a year of um, getting that financing ready, we would um, probably start to license it out. Um, look for our customers, maybe start with uh, the bigger enterprises because it's kind of Easier to sell one high ticket item uh, than a thousand um, low ticket items, you know. So maybe we'll focus on those, but that's not exactly clear. It depends on the amount of benefit it offers other businesses. We'd have to get more precise numbers on um, cost reduction, uh, revenue, and uh, demand augmentation, and um, all those things to really pitch it properly. What does the the kind of world look like? Where afters is realized the the vision, right? Like, what what does success look like? What is the impact that you guys want to have looking back in in retrospect? Yeah, I mean, our biggest goal is truthfully, we created this to ease the lives of consumers, right? There's a lot of different factors that go in, and you know, the important things like spending time with your family and doing what you like, and little nuances like going to the grocery store, things like that can really take away from other moments than that you truly do cherish. So I believe, you know, just by making consumers' lives easier and another big mission of ours was to eliminate, I guess you can't eliminate it, but to decrease the amount of drunk driving. Um, That was a really big thing for us. We don't like to see people drinking and driving. And by having this late night option, I believe that we can really have a big impact to help decrease the amount of drunk driving and the accidents. Yeah, and I think for maybe from a from a business side of things and that economic impact, I guess uh, we want to help well businesses become more profitable at every level, uh, which would be great. Be integrated as, in as many businesses as we can, starting from maybe lo- even eventually local mom and pop shops to big corporations. But I, from the triple triple bottom line approach, if you want to say so, I don't like using two uh, standard terms for these things, but. Um, there's a lot of benefits here uh, when you'd say, be it for afters as the delivery pop-ups or as the AI solution, we can reduce waste by a lot, be it by for perishable products, be it for waste of space, which is eventually going to become a problem in the world. And by kind of empowering other businesses that do delivery, we can start avoiding the need for brick and mortar more and more. And we can also reduce pollution at other levels. Uh, I actually kind of started off as more of a social entrepreneur begin in my early beginnings, which is for me and I know also for Logan something very important. Uh, we can reduce a lot of a lot of bad influences on our surroundings, environment, and make make it overall a better place. Again, a very standard thing to say, but um, I think this can really power some change here. Obviously, we'll never be able to avoid the need for transportation in, in total but just imagine going to the store and bag just for your groceries is usually a trip of an average of 45 to one and 45 minutes to one hour and a half and that trip burns gas there and back whereas we can do multiple deliveries in a row or let's say doordash at once 
which already reduces the emissions and so on, so on and so forth. Just a waste reduction in general would be really, really fantastic to see some impact there. On the transportation front, I think there there was a lot of hype in, I don't know, just reading technology blogs and things like that about you know the, the prospects of the coming robot and drone delivery mechanisms for kind of instant delivery. What's your guys' perspective on on the the reality of of that and and where that is, I think um, there's actually a possibility and a solution for that. Currently, there's a lot of uh, legislation problems, but the most reasonable solution currently would be using a tool like Afters to know what to start store and when, and then uh, using small uh, facilities that are located and automated around the city. So the drone flying distance and the associated risk would actually be lower. At the end of the day, obviously, there's uh, restrictions about flying how high and where and so on and so forth. But let's take a city for Miami, for uh, like Miami, for example, if you do storage facilities around the coast, not within the city, and you reduce the distance that a drone is flying around above people and buildings, that's actually quite feasible um, within the next three to five years, depending on how legislations work and how people decide to work with this. But it's actually possible and it would reduce a lot of pollution. It would kind of pollute the airspace, though, which is kind of a thing that people have to weigh for themselves. Yeah. And then going off of that, I think the drones could be a very, you know, great thing for the future. But then looking at like automated driving, I'm not going to lie, I'm kind of a hater when I, when, you know, we talk about the automation and driving. And the reason why I feel like this is because even if the automated vehicle that is driving itself is 100% accurate, you know, there is no errors, there's still going to be the human error behind the traditional cars. So I feel like unless we can get everything automated very quickly within, you know, maybe five years, I know that's probably very aggressive, but Unless it happens really quick, I think the slow pace of normal human drivers and then the AI, I feel like that's just going to cause a lot of issues. So one thing I wanted to get your guys' perspective on also is just the kind of insight that you have as students, um, or recent students, rather. I think there's you know this whole like unlock, uh, and there's been you know funds that have just come out of kind of academic and, and uh, undergrad experience. And I, I just would love to get your perspective on, you know, what are the things that the unearthed secrets, if you will, that you guys have access to that, you know, the rest of the, the adult world lacks uh, from just, you know, being part of that environment still? Yeah, I think one of the big things with our generation, when you look at, you know, maybe our parents' generations or our grandparents, is I feel like in general, our generation tends to question a lot. And whereas if you look at our grandparents' generation, you know, whatever their parents said, like, this is the correct way to do it. Don't question me. Just go ahead and do it. And that's what they did. Whereas our generation, I feel like, you know, someone might say something it's like, okay, well, why? Or it's like, well, I think this is a better way to do it. So I'm going to go ahead and do it like that. So I think just having that mindset of like always questioning everything, making sure, you know, this is the route you want to go. I think that's a really big benefit. When it comes to um, being students, I guess a lot of the benefits that we have are free resources um, being within that environment. The free resources we have are, are getting increasingly better with every year, actually. I can see now that our, the entrepreneurship department here at Kent State alone is, is growing. They're rebuilding. They're, they're doing a lot of things, which is actually amazing to see. Um, because especially in Ohio, uh, it's a bit more difficult to go into a more modern tech business with the old industry that exists here that is prevalent from the steel, uh, steel and production industries in the past around these areas. And um, also young founders get a lot of uh, benefits when it comes to certain custom funds that are just tailored at young entrepreneurs and also incubators that are associated with the school or, or the connections that you get from professors within entrepreneurship and economics. Those are very, very, very helpful. Um, they, they really accelerate this whole building process, this making connections um, aspect of being a young entrepreneur. And these are 
a lot of the big resources that I think we have and older founders, I guess, don't really get access to, especially if they didn't have the possibility to go to college or if they didn't uh, want to go to college. So I think, yeah, those are the major differences, plus a very supportive community and framework around you um, in colleges such as Kent or anywhere in the U.S., actually. Yeah, and, and going off of uh, what Lukic just said, I feel like there's something with young entrepreneurs where it comes to, you know, obtaining resources and obtaining help. I feel like more people are more willing to help us out since we are younger and we are now just starting to enter, you know, this adulthood. Whereas once you are older and you are an adult, I feel like people tend to give you the cold shoulder a little bit more. Either A, they don't trust you. B, you know, they're like, oh, you should already know what you're doing. And I feel like just having that young aspect to us, people are more willing to help. I think it it always helps to have the, the beginner's mindset to the degree you can so before we, we kind of hit our, our closing question here, I want to just kind of leave it a little bit open for you guys. If there are, you know, components of, of what it is that you're, you're working on at afters or, or things that we haven't really talked about yet that you think are, are important that you want to, that you want to share. I mean, with the risk of sounding repetitive a bit, but I actually didn't quite, I mean, it was kind of superficial on, on the tool side that we're building, but eventually um, just, just to put an example and maybe for, anybody listening or uh, to understand the things that we'll be able to predict will have a ripple down effect and affect the entire supply chain and understanding what to do, but also will give businesses the opportunity to store different products than they already do, eliminate products that they don't need and find perfect substitutes um, that are with higher margins. But yeah, that's all on the technical side might not be as interesting. But um, there's a lot of possibilities that using this framework can bring into all other industries as well, not just in the delivery space, not even only for supply chain. It has a um, retail um, consumer benefit as well at the end of the day. And then one thing that we didn't really talk about is Lucas and I's relationship and our partnership. So I think, you know, what we have going on above all else, above our competitive advantage, above, you know, IDRA is how well Lucas and I can work together. And that's the biggest thing that comes down to our success. Like Lucas has, you know, that very analytical and technical thought process, whereas I might look at it more from like a social and operations mindset. And let's say Lucas and I disagree on something. It's not trying to convince each other to join our side. It's more so let's have an open table discussion. I want to know why you think that way. And once we both understand where we're coming from, we can communicate together and come to a mutual agreement. One of the other big things too is we hold each other accountable and that's really important. Like we can we can be hard on each other and know that like it's just business. Like being a business partner with one of your friends can definitely sometimes be difficult, but we know like if we're being hard on each other and we know it's because we hold each other to a certain accountability and we expect each other to perform at that level. So the relationship that we've built and that we've had definitely plays a big impact on our success and our success that's going to be going forward. So our uh, traditional closing question is uh, to ask folks what their their favorite hidden gems are in Cleveland. But I feel like there's a, a good opportunity here to kind of uh, expand folks' horizons to, to Kent State and what you guys have in the, in the surrounding area. So uh, <laughs> I'll just pose that to you guys. Let us know what what the hidden gems are. Oh my gosh. I am so happy you just asked me this question. The the best (laughs) hidden gem in all of Kent, Ohio is the pub. If you guys guys have not been to the pub, (laughs) please go to the pub. The bartenders are the best. Tasha, if you're listening to this, I love you. Um, But they're perfect. Uh, Super cheap drinks. Food's good. And I'm a big pool player. They have a pool table. So if you stick me in a 10-foot radius of a pool table, I'm happy and you'll probably find me playing it. So that's the biggest hidden gem I can say. I knew he was going to say that, by the way. Uh, (laughs) I started laughing in advance. Actually, in Kent, maybe um, there's nothing really hidden, actually. there's Everybody knows about a lot of things. And in Cleveland, I spend most of my times when I sometimes go up and DJ in the flats or somewhere. But I guess I love steakies here in Kent. It's a, it's a, a Philadelphia cheesesteak place. 
yeah, definitely check out the campus sites. That's something that I used to do when I was in school, um, hang out in the library or Rosie's. Rosie's at Kent State, that's the best thing. 4 a.m., mozzarella sticks. <laughs> right on. Well, if, if folks said anything that they wanted to, to follow up with you guys about afters or, or otherwise, what would be the, the best way for them to do so? Office at afters.io. Even, even direct messaging us on Instagram, you know, that would be a good way as well. Yeah, we haven't really utilized growing our social media, actually. We just worked just work within the community, so we're, we're very happy about that. But yeah, definitely all the social media through the apps or LinkedIn if you're on, more, on a more professional way. Well, Logan, Lucas, really you know, appreciative of, of your guys' time and, and coming on to, to share more about the, the work that you're doing at Afters. I think it's a, it's a really cool space, and it's, uh, it's exciting to hear about you know, all the things that, that you're working through. Hey, thank you for having us. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I definitely appreciate us uh, being able to come on and speak to you and uh, as well as portray everything to your uh, customer base. So thank you. Or cl- not customer base, listeners. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Our dozens of dedicated listeners. Yes. No, really appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on this show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.